0: Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org, where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, friends for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Helen. Hello, Hello, everybody. My name is Helen. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm from Long Beach. I've been in in Overeaters Anonymous since 1976. I came into Overeaters Anonymous because I had just gained back 100 pounds. I had just lost in Weight Watchers. So that's how I got here. So um, I was raised in a tumultuous household. My dad died when uh, I was three. Um, My mom, in 1959... Put me in the back of a Ford Fairlane and drove to California because she had been here once on her honeymoon and liked the weather. So, um, so she came out here and searched for another husband, but there was a problem. And the problem was she was Catholic and she had to find another Catholic, and he couldn't be divorced. He also had to be, you know, a widower, like you know. And they, uh, you know, were few and far between, hard to find. So I think that she married the only Catholic man living in Baldwin Park, California. Uh, I really believe that. Uh, He was a barber, and from what I understand, not a very good barber. And uh, she constantly berated him for not being my father. He wasn't good enough, didn't make enough money, wasn't smart enough. Just the whole thing, you know, and... um, she was sure there was more under there if she kept digging, but she never quite found it. And there was a lot of contempt for uh, him, and, you know, I didn't dislike him. I just saw him as rather simple and taken on way more than he could uh, handle, you know. I mean, if, if if a guy is living in the back of an appliance store, doesn't even have an apartment, that should tell you there's something wrong with his level of functioning. <laughs> Wouldn't you think? In El Monte. Appliance store in El Monte, in the back, he had a little room. So when he wasn't barbering, he was the security guard of the appliance store. And so then, uh, you know, she thrust him with all the responsibilities of a real man, and he uh, wasn't interested, you know. Uh, I've heard Maya Angelou has this uh, line, and I only know this because I watch Oprah, when people try to tell you who, who they are the first time, believe them. (laughs) <laughs> my mom wasn't having it he was trying in a million different ways to say this is who I am No, nope. you're Catholic we're getting married and that's just what happened and she spent uh, 13 years in this marriage and she was just miserable the whole uh, time so um, that's you know I got a lot of my uh, patterns I think of relating to the world relating to men and um, the big book tells us we are bodily and mentally different from our fellows And I think that I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows, but I think the thing that tricked my disease into high gear was when my mother discovered the Day Old Bakery. On her way from the church in Baldwin Park to our new home in West Covina, she stumbled across the Day Old Bakery, and you could get, I'm not kidding you, an entire shopping cart full of hostess things for a dollar twenty. And on the way home, she'd say, Don't eat all that at one time, that's gotta last a whole week. And then she could see I was eating it, I couldn't stop it. And then she'd say things like, What's the matter with you? And then things like, control yourself. If you don't stop that, I'm gonna put it in the freezer. Oh yeah, who's who's ever heard of eating a frozen ding dong? <laughs> But she never once thought, well, maybe I'll quit buying this stuff. <laughs> My child seems to be really, really overweight. By the time I was 14, I weighed 240 pounds. She's still buying this stuff and still, you know, uh, no, it shouldn't be that way. You know, I, um, there's, there's a line in uh, the movie The Inconvenient Truth where Al Gore says, uh, when faced with an inconvenient truth, we move very quickly from denial to despair. And that's what this uh, disease is. I mean, my mom could see what it was doing, deny, 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 and then despair, despair, despair. In the m- middle of denial and despair, there is a solution. And I think that solution is here in Overeaters Anonymous and in the 12 Steps. That's, you know, what I believe for today. But um, there are many inconvenient truths, I think, you know. Some of us are in the wrong job with the wrong life partner, with the, you know, living in the wrong place, um, You know, most of us haven't fulfilled our dreams. There's a lot of inconvenient truths. And what we've done, most of us, if you're anything like me, is eat to make that go away. Deny, deny, deny. And then you're putting on the jeans or the bathing suit. Oh, my God. How did I get this back? Despair, despair, despair. And uh, I think that's where she was with my eating disorder, with her marriage. She just had the blinders on because to uh, look at it she would have had to take action and maybe just quit buying this stuff but that never happened you know and I think that happened in a lot of American households in the 60s you know so you know we found Weight Watchers and that took care of the problem for a minute (laughs) you know Um, we went to the LA County Fair at the end of the, the diet I've lost 100 pounds I've got the big pen with all the little chips in it. Weight Watchers, you got a little diamond chip for every 10 pounds you lost. So a rather big one with a bunch of diamonds on it. And um, we're at the county fair, and um, I see those Balboa bars dipped in chocolate, rolled in nuts, and I decide it's time to have one. I've been good. I've been on this diet. And um, as I'm standing in the line to get it, I'm becoming more and more anxious, a little shaky, by the time I actually get to the item, I'm drooling. And the thought occurs to me, wow, this is not normal. There's something wrong with me. I knew it then. I knew that I had a connection missing and that I was different from my fellows. I knew that, but I didn't know what to do about it other than to eat the Balboa bar. I binged my way through the county fair, and that weekend I stood on the scale And said what we all said. Boy, I gained 10 pounds that weekend. And I said, wow, I've learned my lesson. I'm never going to let that happen again. And we all know how the story ends. (laughs) You know, uh, you're willing each 10 or 20 pounds to accept a new level of pain. Your new level of, oh, I'm never going to get to 200. Then you get there and, well, it isn't that bad. You know, you're. (laughs) You're willing to accept, and for some of us, a lot of disability goes with that, canes and walkers. and um, You know, when you're young, you can be heavy. But as you age, something about old and fat that doesn't go together very well. Because your body starts to break down and get achy. And then you start to take on this whole chin Man thing. You know, you get out of bed at night and you're just walking like this, you know. And that's how it is. I'm just warning all of you that are under the age of 40. That's what, I mean, you know, um, people are living longer. You know, I, I'm a nurse and I saw somebody wheel in at 76 years old, almost 400 pounds. That would have never happened When I first became a nurse. I can tell you that. You didn't live that. Now you're just sort of alive. Kind of. In this pathetic, awful, cane, totem way. It is ugly. So, I mean, the worst part wouldn't be dying. I'm I'm telling you what's on the other side of that. The worst part is old and stiff and kind of half alive, just eating out the final days, propped up in some chair. That's what's on on the end of that. And I I see it all the time. And as a country, that's our inconvenient truth, too. I don't think we dare look at that, you know. know, Can't afford to uh, in in any way look at that. Um, So anyway, I... um, I uh, gained a whole hundred pounds back, and, you know, my mother's there shaking her head saying, how could you let this happen, and I don't know, I can't think about it, I'm in college, I just want to get through and, you know, get on to, get a job and get through this whole thing, and so I finally, you know, get out of college, and, and by this point, my mom is divorced from the barber, and I've got a, a, a brother seven years younger than me, and um, now I'm the caretaker. I'm just kind of living there, taking care of my mom and my younger brother. I'm head of household, basically. And I'm working at this very small community hospital on the night shift. And somebody there tells me about Overeaters Anonymous and mentions that uh, I eat a lot. You know, She said, I've heard of a place that can help people like you. And I said, is it like Alcoholics Anonymous? And she said, it is. And I said, well, then there must be something I'm going to have to give up. Because I knew that AAs didn't drink at all. So there might be a laundry list of things they wouldn't let me have, you know. I got to my first OA meeting, and I've got to say, Overeaters Anonymous, was anybody there in 1976, was... Very enthusiastic. It was like a pep club, like a rally, if you will. And just to to show you, the first speaker got up and literally twirled like this and said, I want you all to see this is a size seven or not whatever she was in. And people stood out of their seats and clapped. And it was all about how beautiful she looked. There was another woman that was the age I am now. Who said some guy winked at her as she was at the traffic light and people stood up and, and I thought, that, that old that She still cares about that? You know, it just seemed like she was long past her prime. I mean, I couldn't imagine anybody even winking at her. But she was so excited about that, you know, and everybody had lost these huge amount of weights. The meeting sometimes had a hundred people in it. It was, And the weight was just flying off of people visually. You could could see it. I mean, from one week to the next, it was a fast weight loss, you know. Um, And you did hear some stuff about the steps. People did, uh, you know, people did talk about God. There was an old man there named Webster. He has long since passed. And uh, he used to have all these little colloquialisms and little riddles that he used to share. And you know what? I never realized what any of them meant until I grew older. But one of the things that he used to say, now I know what he meant. He said, he'd stand up here and just like this, nothing to do with food. He'd say, do you know the difference between a neurotic and a psychotic? And everybody would have this blank look on their face. And he'd say, well, I'll tell you. The psychotic thinks two plus two is five. The neurotic knows two plus two is four. But he can't stand it. And that was me. I knew two plus two was four. I know. I knew the truth about almost everything, but I couldn't stand reality. My theme was, no, no, it shouldn't be this way. That was my mantra. I could not accept life on life's terms, anything about it, because it was all wrong. And my job was to wrestle it to the ground to one of us came up bloody, whatever it was. An unfair job, whatever, you know. I couldn't stand reality. I worked on the night shift, I'm going to tell the trash can story, and uh, the new thing was they were firing all the housekeepers and all the registered nurses would have to empty the trash cans on the night shift. And I said, well, that isn't fair. After all, I didn't go to school to empty trash cans. And I'd go on with this litany about all these reasons I should to my sponsor. She'd listen to her and she goes, Helen, wouldn't it just be easier to empty the trash can? Laughter But I didn't want easy. I wanted fair. I wanted right. You know, and I was always at odds with something because I couldn't get it right, and nothing was fair, nothing at all. And, um, you know, I've spent a lot of uh, years. Most people come in with wreckage of the past because I got here so young, I had to create a lot of wreckage of the past (laughs) while I was here, you know. So, um I remember emptying that first trash can and just how good it felt to get out of self will and how good it felt to be out of the struggle. Um, and today, this is just my opinion. I think there is a big difference between hard work and struggle. Today, I'm willing to work hard, I'm not willing to struggle. That's why I don't eat a lot of different foods, not because I think they're going to make me fat. Once I eat them, I'm back in the game, I'm struggling. I'm like a person in in a cage with a gorilla, right? The gorilla tells you when it's time to stop dancing, right? And if I get in the cage with those foods again, it's going to, I don't know, it could be a week, it could be two weeks, it could be a year, I don't know, to when this disease decides it's done with me, you know? And so I don't want to go as far as to say I'll never have another recovery. I, I think there's always another recovery, you know, um... But, you know, the program is just wonderful, um, filled with a lot of kind and loving people. And if I just show up, yeah, I, I will recover. But to me, it's just not worth it to struggle. And I, you know, I remember after my mother died, the state of Chicago had some money for me. And every time I tried to get this money, I mean, they sent me something saying, this is your money. And I sent him all the documentation, and finally I said, you know what? I'm done. No amount of money is worth this. I'm done. And I never got the money, and I didn't care. Because I can't struggle to obtain anything. If I'm struggling, then it's not God's will. If I'm working hard, and there's a big difference, I'm willing to work hard. I'm willing to work hard at my marriage, parenting, at my job. I am not willing to beat my head against the wall. Time and time again, to get my way or to get something to be fair, or I've got to let other people uh, fight those fights. I just, I just don't have it in me, um, you know. And some people call me a quitter, but um you know, I've been married three times. I've been divorced uh, twice. Um, I didn't um, have my first child until I was forty. Uh, Just, you know, a late bloomer in a lot of respects. So, you know, just kind of get back to the beginning of when I came in. When I I came in, I could not abstain from compulsive overeating for nine years. And I'm going to tell you why I think that is. The diet back then, and there was one, was three meals a day with nothing in between, No refined flour or sugar. And I just couldn't do it. I tried for nine years. I just couldn't do it. I don't know why. And I want to say, you may think I was a visitor to the program, but I wasn't. I was a member. I did the steps. I had a sponsor. I went to tons of meetings. I worked very hard. But I'm going to tell you the one thing I didn't do. I didn't relinquish my control. Because when you're dieting, you're in control. So one of two things would happen. I would have control of the food, and you know what that feels like. It's exhilarating. You're all powerful. And then something would flip. I don't know why it flipped or how it flipped, but then the food would get control of me again, and we'd be off and running. And this cycle would go on and on and on, and this is what would happen. I would eat something. I'd get hungry in between a meal and uh, grab a graham cracker at work. And then the thought would occur to me, oh, well, I'm a failure. What difference does it make anyway? I've had the graham cracker. I might as well binge. And I would binge until I dropped over a graham cracker. You know. And then a sponsor told me, why don't we not call that a break? Why don't we call that a bad food choice? And so now I eat in between meals. Not because I can't make it from one meal to the next. If I'm hungry in between meals, It's extremely distracting, and it pulls my energy. And I've got a little bit of ADD anyway. So there's a list of things that I can have in between meals, you know. But um, my abstinence just got a lot easier then, and after nine years, I was able to abstain. And that particular abstinence, I went 12 and a half years without a break. And then it was a real easy abstinence. It was just no binging. Occasionally, back then I had sweets. I don't have sweets now, but occasionally um, I would have some sweets, and uh, I had certain rules around the sweets. But I managed to go 12 and a half years without a binge, and you know, maintain a pretty fairly normal body size. I probably went up and down uh, 20 or 20 pounds. Um, I was married my second time, and. Um, I think my ex-husband had a reputation he didn't deserve, the quintessential nice guy. But while he was being nice here, he was kind of screwing you, very, you know, kind of passive-aggressive. And um, there were things going on in the marriage that I didn't want to share with anybody. This is my second marriage. At this point, I've got a little kid. You know, she was three, and I was 43 at the time. And I didn't want to tell it, and the the inconvenient truth was that my marriage wasn't good. I felt like I was withering on the vine. But you're not a very popular person when you leave a guy who has a job and who's not cheating on you. That's just, you know, the way our society is. So to tell your mom "Mom or your friends, oh, I'm going to leave this guy, doesn't really go over well. Because you're bored, you're lonely, he's not talking to you, that's a reason to leave somebody because he's ignoring you. And to me, it was a reason. I couldn't wither on the vine. I felt like I was dying. There's just no other way to uh, explain it. It was an extremely lonely place. And so I left, and and we had really disparate views on child-rearing where I was ready for her to start cooking when she was three he was still carrying her like she was three weeks old you know we were just completely at opposite uh, ends of the spectrum and um, you know he would say things like uh, quit looking at her that way you're scaring her and I'd go well good I'm hoping to scare her I scare her I don't want to be like my mother a screaming banshee I want to just shoot you a look and you know you're in trouble you know that's What I thought, and we we went to child counselors and child psychologists. We took parenting classes. I mean, just nothing would help this. We just uh, could not agree on this parenting. And, uh, you know, it just got worse and worse and worse. And one of the things that drove me crazy at this point, you know, I've got a sponsor. I'm working on being nice. I'm working at, you know, this is what I've learned. I never learn anything about myself by putting my eyes on you. You know, if I'm to grow at all, I have to look at my part. And I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, all the steps. First of all, I want to say this. Um, Before I met Kelly's dad, uh, you know, who's a very average, normal guy, I had never had a person that was both drug and alcohol free and had a job. And I was 35 years old, you know, when I met him. And, um... I took a sixth and seventh step on that, and I said, God, whatever it is in me that would have me be attracted to a man that can't even support himself, an unemployed musician, I am now willing that you take this from me. And I've never since then, I'm 56 now, uh, been attracted to an unemployed or a drug or alcohol dependent man. It just was literally taken from me. It was just like a miracle. And so this guy was normal and that was good enough for me then, you know. And then um the older I got, I guess the more that I wanted, the more that I wanted from life, the more that I felt that I deserved, you know. I wanted, you know, a true partner. It was just a very, very difficult time in my life. But one of the things that um one of the things that we uh disagreed on was you know at this point she's five when I actually left he was still carrying her everywhere and one of the first places that we went was the county fair and I made her walk and do you know not once did she say my feet hurt not even once Mm -hmm. and I knew then I had my child back and it's been perfect ever since I mean she's just really a great kid she's 16 years old now we just get along fabulous she's a good girl right she's a very good girl just uh, I just feel very, very uh, fortunate, very lucky, and uh, you know that I stuck to my values and my heart, what I felt was right. But the whole while, I mean, it was the first time that I felt that twinge of I need to leave, and I didn't leave. I stayed from when she was three to when she was five, and I was nice during the whole time. And in my writing, and you know, you can write a lot on the same person. Um, the big book says. For those of you who are new, I I don't know if you know this, resentment is our number one offender. It brings more people back to the bottle than anything else. And then it lists fear as another problem and sexual indiscretions as another problem. It says all three of those are real trouble spots for the alcoholic. And it gives you a very specific formula to deal with resentment. So in case you don't know this, I'm going to tell you what it is. Uh, The first part of this formula, you say, I'm mad at Susan because... How does this affect my security, my self-esteem, my personal relationships, my ambition, and my pocketbook? Now, it may not affect all of those. It may affect your ambition. You know, my ambition is to have a loving husband that agrees with me on everything and who talks to me. Okay, that might be my ambition, right? Then the next part you say, or you ask yourself, where have I been selfish, self-seeking, fearful or dishonest and in the very last part you ask yourself where you're at fault and so uh, the big book says this unfortunate line we think our troubles are basically of our own making that's what it says so um i cause all my own troubles i'm very instrumental in my own troubles and it's they arise out of self-centered fear uh, most of the time you know um For those of you that are new, there's another line in the big book that I really like. A lot of people think that they eat because they like the way food tastes. That's not the reason, according to the big book. It says men and women eat essentially because they like the feeling produced by those few, few excess bites. And this feeling is very elusive. So after a time, they cannot differentiate the normal from the abnormal. And it says, well, why do we eat this extra food? And it explains that because we are restless, irritable, and discontent. So we've got two choices with this, Not, you know, not pissed off, just restless, irritable, and discontent. And that's how I went through most of my life because... It wasn't a fair life. (laughs) So if you were me, you'd be restless, irritable, and discontent too, you know. And there were days I turned into a a screaming, raging lunatic. But most days, restless, irritable, and discontent. It says, and they stay that way until they once again get relief from the few extra bites. And then this phenomena of craving develops. And most of these people, it says, are hopeless. Unless. They experience a psychic change. So if you're in Overeaters Anonymous and you have a sponsor, you have a good chance at obtaining that psychic change. And where the power is, the problem is literally removed from you. You're not fighting it anymore. You really don't even want to eat the excess food. It's very weird. I know for those of you who might be struggling, it sounds like that is totally impossible. But I'm here to tell you it's true. The problem just, poof, goes away. Completely goes away. Isn't that amazing? And then you're seldom tempted. But you have to be willing to follow a few simple rules. And uh, that's the whole caveat, I guess, of the program, isn't it? The few simple rules. You know, giving service, writing every time you get mad, avoiding all sorts of food, avoiding social situations sometimes where there are food and it's going to bother you. You know, on... um, you know, when I was raising Kelly, and, you know, I don't know if this is bad or good or neither, but, you know, my mom always had all this crap in the house, so we never, we never had it. But I didn't forbid it because I wanted her to have it, you know, if she wanted it. But we just never had it in the house, so she had to get it out there. And one day she comes to me, she was about seven, and she said, Mom, I went to a house, and they had this entire jar that was completely full with cookies. And I said, yes, they call those cookie jars. <laughs> she said, do you think we could have one of those here? I said, I just don't think that would work out real good here. And she said, why is that? I said, well, Mom has a problem with cookies. I think if they were here, I'm not sure, but I might eat them all. And she said, no, Mommy, I would hide them from you. And I said, Kelly, better people than you have tried. <laughs> That isn't going to work, is it? So, um, you know, and I just think, you know, you're born with this disease. But I do think this. It would have had a later onset, I believe, had I not been so readily available. And I think the later onset would have been good, and I'm going to tell you why. Because being a fat teenager sucks! (laughs) It ruined my life. It destroyed my self esteem, and on top of that, I was five foot ten, and my shoe size is a twelve, and they only went up to eleven. So I had these—I mean, nothing fit. You know, I'm tall; everything's too short. I've got a size twelve foot. You know, squeezed into a size eleven shoe, and that became a metaphor for my entire life—trying to squeeze a round peg into a square hole. That was, you know, me. And um, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. But um anyway, um, you know, back to how I broke my abstinence. A- a- after 12 and a half years, because I couldn't face that marriage, I ate over it and started eating donuts again and went out for only about six months. And now I've got 12 and a half years again, the same amount of time I had when I broke my abstinence. So... Yeah, the 12 and a half and 12 i and I've been abstaining from compulsive overeating for 25 years, which is pretty darn good, you know, with that little break. But, um, you know, it about a six-month break. And, um, you know, let me tell you, when you get a divorce or you're in your 40s or your 50s, it feels like jumping off a cliff. It really does. Um, because divorce ruins your finances and all your holdings and everything, you know. It's just... You know, I wondered would I ever have another house of my own. Um, You know, it was was tough. But I've got to say this. For as good as a divorce could be, our divorce was that good divorce. It was so good that uh, we did not use an attorney. It was not adversarial. And uh, we were so good at not debting. We actually had a house with $200,000 worth of equity in it. And no credit card. We didn't even have a car that we owed anything on. And not many people can say that, you know. Um, So many things about our marriage I think worked out really well, and we were able to split well. I think uh, that he's been a really good father up until very recently because he doesn't know what to say to her. And she feels like the same way I did. It's just so weird. And she said to me, just last week, Mom, did you always know this would happen? And I said, I always thought it would happen. Don't take it personal. It just is who he is. He just doesn't like to talk. He's not a talker. She said, I feel like I'm dying in that house. The whole house, the whole energy. I don't even like going in the house. Very sad, you know. But, but, I mean, people are who they are. And they can't change because you want them to. People, um... People can't do for you what they're unwilling to do for themselves. That's what I'll say. So um, I had a real pattern. And if you read all your writing to the same person, you will find patterns. And here was my pattern. I would pick a person that was dysfunctional in one or more ways. I would demand that they give me what I wanted and then walk away hurt and disappointed when they couldn't. But over here could be another person that could give me everything, but I wouldn't go over here. I would try to reel it in from this group of people over here. <laughs> and that was my pattern. Um, and now, you know, if it's not up front, I'm not digging for it. You know, I'm not expecting it to get better later. I'm 56 years old. There's not a lot of later left. So it's not. if it's not right up front... I'm not wishing, hoping, and praying for it, you know. I'm doing my part um, to get into life and to be of service to other people, to give service at OA meetings. I sponsor quite a few people. And, um, you know, I, I think compared to where I was as a teenager, I thought my life would just be really, really terrible. I didn't expect any of the blessings, the travel, the... Excitement, just the wonder, just the wonder of kind of being in a normal life. All of you know, uh, you know, I graduated high school in 1975. Only myself and one other girl were real heavy like that, only two of us. And the other girl now weighs 360 pounds. I still keep in touch with her, okay. For kids that were that heavy that long ago, there wasn't much hope for them, you know. And I am here to tell you that there is hope. You don't have to spend the rest of your life obese, struggling, dieting. And let me tell you this. This is good news, too. I haven't had a lean cuisine in two years. I'm not going to eat any more of those. I'm not. I'm not going to eat anything diet-like anymore. I'm done. Finish. Just going to eat real food that my grandmother would recognize. Thank you for letting me share. What do I do now? I'll take questions. I'll take oh, okay. Does anybody have a question? Yes, sir. Um, thank you. At what step was the obsession to eat compulsively removed? The minute that I stopped dieting and trying to manage the food. I, I. It's my opinion. I think the gray sheet's a diet. I was struggling to not eat in between meals. For whatever reason, I couldn't seem to do that. But because it was everybody else's story, at least they were saying that, maybe they weren't telling the truth, but I heard people say that, and so I wanted that to be my story. But where are all those people now? Where are all the people from 1976 who were on that diet? Gone. There's two of them left. One lives in San Pedro and the other in Whittier. They've kept their weight off. Those are the only two I know. I mean, there may be a lot out in the valley. I just don't know them. So when I stop trying to control, manage, manipulate the food and go on your diet, the obsession is removed. The minute I get in there and start calorie counting or get a lean cuisine or start doing points or running around the block obsessively, I'm in trouble because I'm managing and controlling my weight. Once I decide I need to weigh XYZ, that's where I need to be, that's trouble for me. I really don't get to even decide what I weigh, unfortunately. I'm just doing the best I can. I'm just going to meetings, trying to eat regular food that my grandmother would recognize. A lot of fruits and vegetables, no sweets, and wherever it, whatever it shakes out, that's where it shakes out. Okay, for uh, for breakfast today, I had a bowl of oatmeal, a biscuit. Like little puffy biscuits, a bowl of oatmeal, a biscuit and an apple. And for lunch I had lentil soup and I had a vegetarian patty with that. And I haven't had my dinner, but I hear we're having chicken. We're going to some chicken restaurant. But I don't eat a lot of I don't eat a lot of beef or chicken or anything like that. I do have I have let me tell you at work I have a lot of tuna sandwiches. I have almost the same thing. A whole bunch of carrots and chopped up vegetables and a tuna sandwich. I have that probably four days a week. You can't. I think that when you write about it and your sponsor directs you to the sixth and seventh step, you would say something like this, God, I'm tired. I don't want to be thinking about food all the time. I know there's a rich beautiful life that you would like me to live. This occupies too much of my brain. I would like to be of greater service to you and my family and my job, my employer. Please take away this obsession with food, calorie, weights, diets, the scale, exercise. Whatever it is that you're doing to control, ask God to remove it. And I'm telling you, it'll happen. It's really powerful. It's just, And when your head goes back there, You just say, I'm counting points again, or I'm count. please take it away. I want to be of service, and just, you know, you might have to do it over and over again, and you pitch about it at meetings, too, you know, and tell your sponsor, I'm not, you know, I'm not counting calories anymore. Make it be known that you're not doing that anymore. When I'm struggling, I'm filled with angst and fantasies of control. Well, if this doesn't happen, then I'll do this. I'm having conversations in my head that haven't occurred yet. I'm getting mad. My heart is racing. You know, I'm fighting. It feels like a fight, like a struggle. The other thing is working hard is exhilarating. I don't know if you've ever worked harder at anything. If you've got a great project at work and you're all jazzed about it, you're working hard and you're really proud of your work product at the end. Struggling, that's your energy. You're tired all the time. You're not exhilarated. You're not looking forward to working harder. And at the end of your work product, you have a product to show. At the end of struggle, you have nothing. (laughs) (laughs) You know? If you're working hard, if you plant flowers, they're going to come up in the spring. You will see them visually. If you work hard child-rearing, your children will show it. You know, but if you're struggling, it's not going to get any better. You know, one of the things I've decided to give up is school loop. I don't know if you know what school loop is. School loop is where you keep an eye on your child's grades every day. They flash before you as soon as you open up the Internet. I'm done with school loop. I can't fight her, you know. She's already 16. Any control I think I have is a total illusion. <laughs> yeah. When she was 12, she asked me, Mom, when do you think I will have sex? And I said, whenever your sex drive kicks in. <laughs> I don't know when that will be. Whenever it is, you tell me, Mom, it's kicked in. Let's go to the doctor. Because I can't control when, or if she has sex. She's going to do it whenever she's going to do it. If I think I have control, I'm in some ridiculous fantasy land, and I'm going to end up with a pregnant daughter. It's the truth. I have no control over her, none. I mean, I can set a lot of rules and boundaries. There can be some consequences, but in the end, God's in charge. And she seems to be remarkably responsible. Thank you, that's all the time I have.